means to love Jesus above all others and to know him. So to be a disciple is to love him, to love Jesus above all others, including family. And to be a disciple is to love Jesus until the end. And I should say before we start that as I preached to you this morning, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid of this passage anymore, by God's grace. If you feel intimidated, at least, or afraid, I pray by the end of it, you will see these words as part of uh, the gospel of Jesus and as loving words from the most loving man in the universe. So let's get started. Verse 25, look with me. Now great crowds accompanied him. That word accompany reminds us that here in the Gospel of Luke, where we are, we're on a journey. So in Luke chapter 9, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And in Luke chapter 19, Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. But from 9 to 19, he's on the way. And he knows that every step toward Jerusalem is one step closer to the cross. He knows he's going to Jerusalem to die. But nobody else knows it. And so as he's journeying, a whole bunch of people start to follow him. They see him cleansing lepers, healing the sick, raising the dead, criticizing religious leadership, and so crowds form. And they're hoping that he's going to Jerusalem and be crowned as king rather than to be crucified. And so Jesus looks back at these great crowds, you'll notice that Luke calls them crowds rather than disciples, and he knows that as yet, many of these people are uncommitted to him. Many of them have not yet decided if they're going to be more than just observe Jesus and actually follow him as full disciples. And he also knows that many of these people have no idea what discipleship to a crucified king really intends, or what it might cost. And Jesus has no interest in having people start to follow him who don't know what it means to follow him. And so these words are a little bit like one of those classes in college at the beginning of the Greek program where like 300 people join it because they want to be doctors and they take chemistry and they're like, ooh, not really sure I want to be a doctor after all. 300 people start, 100 people end. But the people that end know what they're in And Jesus' purpose here is to sift some of those who are just kind of caught up in the moment versus those who and how much follow this man. And so one day, he turns around, he gathers the attention of these great crowds. You can imagine that there would just be a hush in the crowd as Jesus is on ahead. And he speaks some of the most grammatical words ever spoken. So he's going to communicate his message in two calls and two parables. And then a final promise in one. So that's how we're going to look at the passage this morning. So let's keep reading in verse 25 to see the first call that Jesus gives to the crowd. He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and 
perseverance endures fear. So before we try to dig into what Jesus does mean by that word hate, let's consider just swipe some things off the table that he does not mean. Number one, to hate your family does not mean to resent your family or to wish ill for your family. Resentment, desire for another's downfall are sins, and of course, Jesus never commands us to sin. Number two, to hate your family is not to dishonor your family. Jesus had really strong words for people who found clever ways to get around the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother, like the Pharisees often did. What a fine way you have, he told them, to replace the commandment of God with the traditions of men. And the Gospel of Luke shows us, we've seen how Jesus honors his father and mother at every turn, even when he did things that uh, went against the wishes. And number three, to hate your family doesn't even necessarily mean that you distance yourself from your family or keep them at arm's length. In Jesus' time, it's true that to follow him would require that you leave your family for a time. If you're going to be a disciple and go on the road with him, you're going to have to leave home. So, at the time anyway, at least for a time, you would have to leave your family. But even in the Gospels, we see that sometimes when somebody believes in Jesus, he doesn't tell them to leave their family, but to go back home. You remember the demon-possessed man in Luke chapter 8, when he casts out, he just casts out his legion of demons, and he says, Jesus, let me come with you, and Jesus says, return to your home, and declare how much God is So, go hate your family at home. So, to hate your family doesn't mean to resent your family, doesn't mean to dishonor your family. It doesn't mean necessarily to distance yourself from your family. So what does it mean? Here's what it means. Why do you imagine two paths? There's a path of family that runs through this world. And there's a path of Jesus that runs through this world. And very often, the path of family and the path of Jesus, they run side by side. Because so much about family is good and not good. But the time will come again and again when the path of family goes this way and the path of Jesus goes this way. And to hate your family in those moments is to follow the Jesus path, even if it costs you much. Flip over. Just to Luke 16, 13, just for a moment to see a little bit where I'm getting this. Consider what Jesus means in this verse by the word hate. Here's what he says. He says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So, the time will come if you try to serve God and money where the paths will go different ways and you will be forced to decide, am I going to go with the path of money or with the path of God? And the end result of that process, Jesus says, is that you end up hating one and loving the other. 
Now the innocence here is not on emotions, as if you despise or you resent internally the one master whom you do not serve. The emphasis is on allegiance. When you go one way, you hate the other master, meaning you do not serve that other master ultimately. And so hate is a really strong, arresting way of Jesus saying, if you be my disciple, then you do not answer ultimately to anybody else besides me. I am your master. So the passage is not an invitation to scrutinize the affections that you feel if you're feeling. It's not an invitation to go home this afternoon and feel guilty when you find yourself laughing with your kids or enjoying your spouse or talking with your kids or your siblings on the phone. Family affection is from God. He is a father who loves his son in the Holy Spirit. And he means for our affection, for our families to run deep. But this passage is an invitation to ask this. As we walk with mother and father, as you walk with wife or husband and children, as you walk with brothers and sisters, do they sometimes very clearly see you leave the path that they are on in order to walk with Jesus' path? You do it graciously. You do it as peaceably as you can. Perhaps if God would give it to you, you do it with tears in your eyes. But still, by the power of God, you choose to go with Jesus when they want you to go a different way. So the time will come for some of us when we will need to risk our relationship with our parents in order to be honest with them about Jesus. Perhaps again or for the tenth time. The time will come for some of us when we will not be able to celebrate some of the life choices of our siblings, even though they really want us to, even though we love them and we want good for them, we won't be able to go there with them. The time will come on a small scale when we will need to bring up an issue with our spouse or our kids, even though we know it's going to disrupt the afternoon. And we would really just rather keep the peace and have fun. And in each of these situations, it's going to like your parents or your spouse or your kids or your siblings are saying, follow me. And you're really going to want to because you love these people. But to hate them in that moment is to say, follow Jesus. So I can't go this way with you right now. That includes family, as we've seen, but it also includes so keep looking at that verse 26 at the end of that verse. If anyone comes to me, Jesus says, and does not hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, so now what does it mean to hate your life? Like we've seen, the emphasis here isn't on emotions. It's not as if Jesus is saying you need to loathe yourself. He assumes. We love ourselves. He tells us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. It's in his But what we've seen, uh, 
uh, with family is the same case here. The times will come every single day, and sometimes every hour, when some voice inside of your church is going to say, follow me. And it is going to point down a path that goes away from Jesus. And to hate your life in those moments is to say to that voice inside of you, to that old self, I'm not a disciple. I don't follow you. I, I cannot follow you because I'm serving of one Lord. I'm serving of one Master, Jesus. So I don't need to take a second glance or a third drink. I don't need to say that joke or watch that show. I do not belong to you. I belong to Jesus. One thing that hit me as I was thinking about, you know, we're still in the first call here that has two parts. You gotta hate your family and you gotta hate your life. And thinking about that, it seems one of the reasons Jesus is saying that here is because the only way we can love uh, excuse me, hate our families with integrity is if we are at the same time hating our own lives. Here's what I mean by that. For some Christians, they're bolder by temperament, perhaps. They don't find it as much of a struggle to put family relationships second, keep Jesus first, be blunt with their words when they need to create distance when necessary. But sometimes, those same Christians, as they are hating their family in those ways, are not hating their own sin. They're not only bold, but they're uh, prideful in the ways that they distance themselves from their family. Or their family can see really clearly how they're not following them as a master, but it still seems like they're uh, following their own individual sins as a master. So I can think back of my early days of being a Christian, and I could be pretty bold with my family about Jesus, and I wish that I had hated my own problem. I think that it would have made Jesus more believable to my family if, while I was hating the relationships with them, I was hating my own life very clearly before. So that they saw, this isn't an issue of just not having family as master, this is an issue of not having anything as master except Jesus. So that's the first call. Let's consider now the second. So look at verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my Oftentimes, people would line either side of the road. There's a 
person was walking with the cross, and they were curled in Stolta. Can you imagine that? They were reviled this person who was about to die. And Jesus is saying, the Sabbath is a little bit like that. You have to be willing to, to wear a cross on your back. And to walk through this world with some of the people you love most, if it should come to it, standing on either side of the road, misunderstanding, even opposing. It means that you and I disciple, you have to always be ready for rejection, whether small or whether large. So you can see now how the second call relates to the first call. Because when you live in a way that puts Jesus first and other people second, other people are not always going to like that. They may misunderstand your motives. They may start to say untrue things about you. They may say untrue things about Jesus. That he pulls families apart or something like that. And to be a disciple in those moments is to be willing to walk through that situation with a cross on your back. To be willing to be rejected or misunderstood or reviled without retaliating. So in other words, it is being willing to walk as Jesus would walk if you are obedient to the first of those calls to hate your family. So not only hate your family and hate your life, but now respond to the consequences of that as Jesus himself responded to his enemies. Now before we move on to the parables that Jesus is about to give, notice one final word that appears in both of these calls. If you don't hate your family in life, and if you don't bear your cross, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. It's not just unwise, it's not just second best, but it is impossible to be a disciple of Jesus without heeding these two calls. And you can see that if you just think of the imagery of discipleship. Discipleship is a following. And so if you're following something else, then by definition cannot be following Jesus. Now we know that Jesus is not looking for perfect disciples. He's going to the cross. That's why his whole gospel is heading so that we people can follow him as imperfect disciples and receive forgiveness along the way. But hear this. Jesus is not willing for us to redefine discipleship to mean something less than this. So this is the standard of discipleship that we strive for as his people. And when we fail to meet the standard, what we don't do is redefine the standard to mean something lower that we actually have met. Instead, what we do is we ask for this. We come to him as a repentant and we ask for grace to follow him on this path rather than on a different path. And so the question is not, are you walking this path of discipleship perfectly? The question is, is this the path you're walking on? And are you willing to put your hand freshly into the hand of Jesus to have him lead you deeper down this path all your days, even though it costs you? So those are Jesus' two calls to this crowd of potential disciples. 
He's going to tell two parables now, two stories that help us understand the Bible. So let's read them both together and then step back and consider what Jesus is saying through them. Verses 28 to 32. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count costs, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So now imagine this. You have a neighbor who announces to you and the rest of the neighborhood that he's going to build a tower in front of Who knows for what? So he clears that space, 10 feet by 10 feet, digs deep, lays a concrete foundation, this has been going on for weeks. Then one day he stops, you don't see him out there working. Same the next day and for weeks, and a month or two goes by. You can see he's trying to kick some sticks and grass over the foundations, so no one notices it anymore. But everybody sees what's going on. And people walk by, standing on themselves, starting on the run. It's not able to finish. That's what it seems. You're on a hilltop looking down on a battlefield. And you see an army approaching from one direction. You look the other way, and you see another army approaching. This one right here. The first army, you see that somebody comes out and gallops across the expanse and goes to the other army and is talking to some people on the front lines. And he comes back, and you watch both armies go their way. They decided not to peace. I say that we create these parables in part because parables are intended to get down into the imaginative level, not be reduced to a point right there. And so, what is Jesus doing? What is he trying to get us to imagine or to feel? He's trying to help us to feel, to imagine the falling of the beginning of a great venture. How foolish it is to start building a tower without knowing how much money to be How foolish it is to enter a battle without knowing how many soldiers you have and how many soldiers they have. And how foolish to begin following Jesus without considering without the cost The Christian life, in some ways, is like building a tower or like waging a war. At the beginning, it can feel so exciting. There's this venture, there's this, there's this thing, you set an hour, you started something. And at the end, if you succeed, it's glorious. But in the middle, it can feel exhausting. And you realize that you have to give up more than you imagined to do. And the process of hating your family, hating your 
experiences here like you didn't have And here's the hard reality that Jesus is pressing into the crowds and it's us. He's saying that it would be better not to have started to follow him than to follow him only for a time. It would be better to be the king who realized that the gospel, that he didn't have enough soldiers to finish his war to not even begin, than to be the, the guy who started building his tower and after laying the foundation couldn't finish it. Now why is that? Why would it be so much better not to even start following Jesus than to follow him only for a little bit? The answer is a little bit surprising. It's there in verses 29 and 30. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. When somebody becomes a disciple, their life is intended to be a monument to the glory of Christ. And when somebody stops being a disciple, what was supposed to be a monument to Christ's glory becomes a source of glory. So, somebody's family sees uh, their daughter or son go off to college and start following Jesus directly. For a while, for some weeks, for some years, they follow Jesus, they hate their family, they go this path, and then slowly they start to settle back. And the family says, yeah, we knew this whole Jesus thing in the past. This person, she's always just have an impulsive. Far better, Jesus says, not to start following him at all, than to follow him for a time. And when you stop to declare with your life that he really was not valuable after all. So, Jesus is telling these great crowds, slow down, count the cost, sit down, deliberate, consider what it will mean to follow me. Are you willing to love me above all until the end? Now Jesus is going to draw his conclusion in verse 33 from these two parables and from the previous teaching. So, verse 33, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be nice What does that phrase mean? Renounce all he has. The word renounce literally means something like to say farewell. So imagine gathering up all your possessions, all your relationships, all your personal hopes and dreams, putting them in a big pile, setting them back and waiting. Or better, imagine gathering them all up in your hands and coming to the Lord Jesus and laying them in his hands and saying, What was mine is now yours, which you please do whatever you will. Now there is something remarkable here. What did it mean for the people in the parables to count the cost? It meant for them to determine if they had enough personal resources in order to complete a large project eventually. So the builder had to count his money, and the king had to count his soldiers. What does it mean for Christians to count the cost? Or for 
nothing you have in a personal resources, but that you take whatever personal resources you have and you entrust them all to Jesus. The requirement is not that you come with your hands full, but that you come to Jesus with your hands empty. Which means that as radical as these words are, they are also incredibly beautiful and church they are for everybody. You don't need to have anything to be a disciple of Jesus. You don't need to have enough money, you don't need to have enough social capital, enough humor, enough good looks, enough personality. What you do have to do is take whatever you do have and consider it no longer your own, but belonging to Jesus Christ. He went to the cross so that there would be no barrier keeping us from following him, except what we hold in our hands. And the way to follow him is to open it. And to put whatever is in them into his care. Trust that everything in your life is better under Jesus' care than under your own. So now we've heard Jesus speak to all of these two parables. And the final verse is going to give us his, his uh, final promise and warning. So, first of all, let's look at the verse 34. Salt is good. Gearshift, we were talking about towers and wars, and we're talking about salt. Why are we talking about salt? Talking about salt because it was a valuable resource in Jesus' day. He's not probably talking about table salt that you put on food, but salt that you put into the soil. It's good for fertilizer. And Jesus is comparing his disciples here to salt, his true disciples. And notice the simple but wonderful statement that he makes about it. Salt is good. Oh, how good it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Do not miss this. In all of the talk of hating family and hating self and bearing your cross and counting the cost, It is thrown away. 
in the same reality as the tower builder who stopped building, or to a king who lost the war. Salt is salt represents former disciples. People who once had the goodness of salt in them because they loved Jesus above all, but now who no longer love Jesus above all. And wherever there is a life without Jesus at the head of it, there is a life without the goodness of salt. And so when salt has lost its taste, Jesus says, it is thrown away. These are blunt words. These are weak words. But remember that they come to us from the most loving man in the universe. And that is what he's doing here. He is loving us. Because Jesus doesn't want anybody to lose their salt. He doesn't want anyone to start building a tower, to stop, or to wage a war, or to lose. He wants all of his disciples to keep their saltiness. He wants all of them to make it to the end. So he's saying, remember what it is to find me. Don't lose heart when following him brings relational strain or even heartache. This is not unusual. This is part of it. It's part of the cost. So don't lose your salt. So to return to the main point, to be a disciple of Jesus is to love Jesus above all and to the it is unlike Jesus to speak a hard word without also offering a higher reward, isn't it? You'll recall even in the passage about uh, picking up your cross daily, he says, Whoever would save his life will lose it, or whoever loses his life will not save it, will save it. Usually, when Jesus speaks his hardest words, he offers promises that make us realize how this is totally worth it. We've already seen some of the promise in this passage. In the final verse, namely that if you love Jesus above all until the end, you're going to have the goodness of salt in you. You're going to do more good to the people in your life than you ever would have otherwise. But Jesus also has more for us here, even though it's not quite as explicit. Go back to the verse 26. If anybody comes to me, does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So among all of the hard and weighty words of this passage, there are two of them that are full of promise and reward. And they are these. Me and mine. If you would come to me, Jesus says, and if you would be my disciple, in other words, the reward church, both now, both now and always, for heeding the call of Jesus in this passage and loving him not only for a time but for a lifetime, is that you get to be his. You get to be his disciple. You get to belong to him. You get to walk with him. You get to know him. You get to worship him. You get to share him with others. You get Jesus. And before you were made for a mother or a father or a wife or a husband or children or siblings, you were made for Jesus. And so if this passage, Jesus' call to love him above all, if it feels like 
calling us from the great love family to the far greater love itself. So yes, count the cost. Sit down and remember afresh what it means to follow Jesus or for the first time if you want. Consider what it would mean for your family. Consider what it would mean for yourself. But whenever you count the cost, count the cost of Christ. Count the cost with Jesus in the center of your vision. Not just off here wondering, ooh, am I willing to give up this? No, are you willing to have Christ? So count the cost with him who he renounced everything in order to save you. And is even now holding out his hand, willing to give you his presence and his power for everything he calls him to. Wherever he calls us to walk, we do not walk alone. We walk